You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles this morning uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 through 15. Last week we began uh, to talk about the women's role in the church. The goal for last week was really to just lay a foundation using the Old and the New Testament. This week I do want to look more at the text um, and we'll be focusing in on verses 12 to 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is a very hotly debated and very important issue. Some I know maybe thinking that, so women preach, women teach, what's the big deal? In fact, I've heard some women who I think are a lot better than the men uh, that I hear on the radio. Well, to that I would say it is a big deal if God has forbidden it. If God has forbidden it, it's a big deal. If God said to the church, you cannot do this, and the church said, oh, but we will do it, then that is insubordination. That is insubordination of the highest kind. That is insubordination against God Almighty. So we need to be very, very careful in our observation, in our explanation, and in our application of this text. If I misinterpret this, if I get this wrong, then I am basically saying that God is forbidding something that he never forbid. And that's a very serious thing. But if I am correct in my interpretation of this, um, then many churches will need to repent and return to the order that God himself has established. In the past uh, month or so, I have poured over hundreds and hundreds of pages of texts from commentaries and articles. I've looked at uh, many, many uh, videos regarding this issue. And the reason that I bring that up is because two sermons is not going to cover everything that needs to be covered. In two sermons, I am not going to be able to exhaust uh, the arguments for or against uh, this issue. We're not going to be able to cover even everything in the verses that we're looking at 11 through 15 uh, today. And to that end, I really want to stress the fact that I do want to make myself available. The leaders of this church want to make themselves available to answer any questions that you may have. But today, what I want to do is I want to seek to demonstrate that the Bible teaches that although men and women are equally created in the image of God— and can equally claim all of the promises of God in the New Testament, and are equally heirs of salvation, God has given specific, differing, complementary roles to men and women in the church. So let's read the text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing 
if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In laying our foundation uh, for the role of men and women in the church, what we did last week is we went all the way back to the created order. We saw all creatures, including males and females, have been given differing essential roles by God. So that means that these roles are important to understand. And I don't think that you and I realize just how much cultural baggage we bring to issues like this one. We look at our society, and then we look at statements that Paul makes, like in 1 Timothy 2, that says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And we think to ourselves, this cannot mean, this cannot be saying what I think it's saying. And we do this with a lot of things. I don't think we realize it, but we do it with a lot of things. One example that I was thinking of is even the issue of homosexuality. And now, I am not making a one-to-one -one correlation between the role of women in homosexuality, um, nor do I want to um, introduce more controversy into the sermon than is already there. But there is a trend in American churches today and around the world, um, and the trend is that more and more churches are embracing homosexuality, uh, saying that the Bible actually affirms homosexuality. Uh, and I, I'm asking myself, why is that? And I believe it's because our, our sinful culture finds the Bible's teaching on homosexuality to be offensive. And we as the church do not want to offend and so we're all too happy to throw out 2,000 years of the plain reading and meaning of the text and reinterpret it to say what the world wants it to say. Instead of starting with the Bible and calling the world to conform to the standards of the Bible, what we do is we start with our culture, the world, and we call the Bible to conform to the standards of the world. Now, it's interesting to me that the implication is that the church got this issue of homosexuality and this issue now of the role of women in the church wrong for the last 2,000 years. And we're now, uh, only now are we finally getting it right. It's further interesting to me that this is all happening in a time when it is obvious that sin is increasing in the world and our country is getting further and further away from biblical morality. And yet we as the church are happy to give in to our fallen society and actually give them a voice in the church, a table, a seat at the table. This to me is utterly shameful. Finally, I think it's very noteworthy that Jesus, Peter, Jude, and Paul all talked about the increase in deception in the world. Paul particularly talks about the deception regarding this very issue in the first century, the issue of the role of women. And my question is this, do you think that it would get any better in our progressive 2020 year? Do you think it would be any better than it was in the first century? And my response is, I think not. Rather, we should expect that it would intensify. I call it deception because it's all done in the name of Jesus. Um, uh, the people who oppose, um, uh, who affirm homosexuality or oppose uh, the differing roles of women all use the Bible. Um, and I believe that they are twisting it. I believe that they're twisting it to abolish the role of men and women and thus allow women um, to teach and exercise authority over men in the church. And that's what we're going to explore today.
Um, I, I wanted to bring one more foundational uh, truth before you uh, today that I think is noteworthy in our understanding of gender roles. And that's the idea, uh, the concept of what is known as households. Um, in the ancient world, there were these things known as household codes. Um, and the household code basically said that the man, the male, um, is the head of the household. He is the one who rules his wife and his children and all of the servants that are in the house. This is what is known as the household code. And this code is, is not only seen in the pages of the Old Testament in the law, and there's too many verses to go um, into that right now, um, but it's also seen in many of the ancient civilizations during the Old Testament period as well, in addition to Israel. We see this, uh, these codes in, in places like what is known as the Hammurabi Code, which was uh, written at about 1900 BC, so 2,000 years before the time of Christ. We also see it in the Greek and Roman household codes uh, as well, um, more towards uh, the first century BC and the first century AD. The point is that they all seem to be saying the same thing, that once again there is a God-given order in creation regarding men and women. And this is important, I believe, because when we look at the, uh, the church um, and we look at the people of God, among the many titles that are used to describe the people of God in the Bible, among those is household. Household. We are called the household of God. We actually see the word household several times in both First and Second Timothy. Notable is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. If you're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, just turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Regarding, uh, verse 5, regarding the elders, the qualifications of an elder, here is what Paul says. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Okay, so there seems to be a correlation between the church and the household. God seems to be operating them in the same way. Now, uh, for further proof of this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul actually calls Christians the household of God. He says this in Ephesians 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, he refers to us as the household of God. So, if God did establish an order of headship at the creation regarding men and women, a headship that is seen in even other ancient civilizations, and if he, and if the church is called the household of God, and if Paul made statements such as, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, and statements such as, the head of every woman is the man, then it would seem that these household codes established at creation, seen throughout history, would just naturally flow into the life and order of God's church. But some might disagree, uh, so let's look at the text of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. My goal uh, today is to explain the text, answer um, some of the major objections as we go, and then finish by celebrating once again God's 
design for women, a design that is unique, essential, and beautiful. Um, Verse 12 once again says this, I do not permit or allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. To teach um, is, is talking about the truths of scripture in an authoritative way. Um, and this is how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. When it's talking about teaching, it's talking about uh, the teachings of, uh, of the truths of God. Exercise authority means to take charge, to take control. Now we know that the setting of this, 1 Timothy, that Paul's instructions are, is, the setting is that of the church. So we see right at the outset that Paul is, is, is uh, drawing a distinction between men and women. Now, some might object and say, well, if that's the case, then Paul is really contradicting himself because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, here's what Paul says. He says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, he, he just right there obliterated all of the distinctions between men and women, didn't he? Well, we don't have time to go into all of that right now, but it's very plain. One of the fundamental uh, points of Bible study, one of the fundamental keys is that context is everything. Context is king. Context is key. And the context of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, is the context of salvation. Is the context of salvation, namely that salvation is available to all without distinction. There's no distinction. Now, there are many distinctive classes in the world. Paul lists several of them here. Jews and Gentiles, uh, people who are slaves and people who are the masters, um, men and women. All are viewed differently. All have different places in society. Some would say, hey, I'm in authority. I'm not in authority. The Jews were given the oracles of God. The Gentiles are just coming in and learning these things. And what Paul is saying is that it doesn't matter. Salvation is available to all of them. It doesn't matter. No one is excluded. It is available to everyone. Paul does not address, however, in Romans or in Galatians 3.28, the issue of roles. That's not his point there. He addresses the issue of roles in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Another objection that is often raised is that this is a cultural issue. It was specifically for that period of time. It was made during that time and only for that time. And those who take this position note that verse 12 Um, And this is getting into a little bit of Greek grammar, and I don't like to do that um, because it gets a little bit uh, convoluted. But verse 12, um, when Paul says, uh, when he is saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, that is an indicative statement. It is not an imperative. In the Greek, it is not an imperative. It is not a command Therefore, it should not be seen, it should be just seen as a temporary thing that's only for that time. Now, if that were the case, then Paul's statement in Romans chapter 12, where he says this, I appeal to you, okay, or beseech you or urge you, that is an an indicative statement. It is not an imperative right there. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
If we were to use the same reasoning, we would say that this was a culturally specific statement as well. That first century, yes, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now in 2020, we don't have to do that anymore. No, I don't think that the uh, argument follows. Also to argue that Paul's instructions are temporary ignores the context. As once again, and, and you'll hear me say this over and over again, Paul is rooting these instructions in the created order, in the original created order. Paul's prohibition here is universal and enduring, and we'll return to that in a moment. A third objection that is often raised um, is that the context makes it clear that Paul is not forbidding women to teach or to hold positions of leadership over a man. Um, rather, Paul is telling women that they cannot teach error and they cannot domineer over a man. Okay? Now, certainly this would fit the context of 1 Timothy uh, because Paul tells Timothy earlier to silence false teachers, right? So it would fit the context. Um, but once again, Paul roots his instructions in the created God-given order. And besides, it would seem very strange to me that Paul would be saying, I'm okay with women teaching as long as they don't teach error. Right? I mean, that would go without saying. <laughs> he never permits anyone um, to teach error. Once again, I believe that this is an issue of distinguishing roles. But before we get into that, let me pause here and quickly say that this does not entirely rule out women teaching, okay? It does not entirely rule out women teaching. Priscilla, who was a woman, along with her husband Aquila, both instructed Apollos, who was a man, in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. But it's important because they did it in private and not in the setting of the official church worship service. A woman could come uh, and pull me aside and say, hey, I've been studying this passage of scripture. Here's what I learned. And I could actually learn something from her, right? I wouldn't be like, no, 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 you're a woman. Don't talk to me. I can't take this right now, right? I could actually learn from a woman there. Plus, women can and must teach other women, according to Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Many women, it's obvious, are gifted teachers and able to explain the truths of God very clearly. But once again, this is not an issue of ability. This is an issue of permissibility. And Paul says, I do not permit it in the church setting. Let me read these verses again. Uh, and then let me paraphrase the, uh, what I believe Paul is saying uh, to make it a little bit more clear. He says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here's my paraphrase. Uh, it says this, um, Paul is saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Why? Well, because Adam was created first and therefore given the authority over the woman. But what happened? Well, the woman reversed those God-given roles, plunged us all into the current mess that we're in, where we are all now in need of salvation. 
This all comes from, uh, this deception all comes from Genesis chapter 3. So what I want you to do right now, if, if you can, is I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Um, and I want to read this passage and see if it can shed any light on 1 Timothy chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says this. Now the serpent, this is Satan um, coming in the form of a created being. All right. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch, touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, so there is the deception that Paul is talking about in First Timothy chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3 uh, goes on to say that because of eating the fruit, their eyes were opened. They immediately recognized that they were naked. Okay, they heard God coming, so what did they do? They covered themselves with leaves and then they hid from God. Now God finds them because God always wins at the game of hide and seek, right? Um, God is everywhere. There's nowhere that we can go from his presence. And then in verse 14, God begins to hand out curses. He begins to hand, hand out curses. The man and the woman are in big trouble. They have violated the law of God. But before he pronounces curses on the man or the woman, he curses the snake first. He curses the serpent. And I think that this is very, very important. Because found in the serpent's curse is hope for the man and the woman and the people who will come after them, us. Because God talks in the curse to the serpent about one who would crush the head of the serpent. One who would be sent into the world and who would buy back humanity who had now fallen away. So right there in the middle in, in, um, that God starts with the curse to the serpent and he offers hope to humanity. So in light of that, he starts to hand out the curses to the man and the woman, beginning with the woman. And here's what he says in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have what? listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. And then go, God goes on to explain what his curse will be as well. That word listened 
literally means obeyed. Obeyed. Do you see what's going on here? The fact that Eve told the serpent that, no, God said we're not allowed to eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden implies, is evidence that Adam actually taught her those truths, right? It's evident that her husband instructed her and taught her there. If she would have listened or obeyed his teaching, then everything would have been okay, right? We would not be in the mess that we are. But what Eve did is she reversed the order. She exercised authority over the man. She taught, Adam listened, and the whole world was plunged into sin. Here's what one author noted. He said this quote, here is the irony. God had given Adam and Eve awesome authority. The creation order issued like this. God made Adam, then made Eve to be Adam's helper, and both of them were to rule over all of creation. But due to her rebellion, a creature, part of creation, a snake began to rule her because she obeyed it. Let me just stop there for a second in this quote. Do you see what he's saying? The role of mankind was to rule over creation. They were to rule the way that God would. But here, they allowed a creature that they were given authority to rule over, to rule over them. The roles were suddenly reversed, and that is not good. He goes on, this author goes on to say, Then Eve exercised woeful authority over her husband by leading him to do the same thing. And Adam? It appears from Genesis 3, 6 that Adam was with Eve when she partook but did nothing. Then listened to the voice of his wife and ate of the tree. Eve's sin involved overturning the order of creation and teaching her husband. Similarly, Adam's sin came from listening to his wife in the sense of heeding and following her instruction. He was taught by her, thereby putting himself under her authority and reversing God's good ordering of creation. End quote. So why is a woman not permitted to teach or to exercise authority over a man? Once again, it's because it has not been given to her as a role. God has not given her this role. And when people ignore God's established roles and start to invent their own consequences, the consequences of this are always devastating. So like last week, I want to stress the importance of roles. We may not always understand them, but God has established them. And once again, he is the creator we are the creation. God is the one who establishes and sets up the rules. Now, not, now God knows that because of sin, we will naturally fight against those rules. Satan opposes everything that God does, including rules. Even in Genesis chapter 3, God told the woman that what you will do now is that you will try to exercise authority over the man. You will try to, again, go out of that God-given role that you've been given, and you will try to exercise authority over a man. If you're in Genesis 3, if you could turn over to Genesis chapter 4, 
verse 7, the situation is Cain. Um, Cain uh, and Abel, his brother, have offered sacrifices to God. Uh, God accepts Abel's sacrifice, does not accept Cain's. Cain is jealous and starting to plot against his brother. And here's what God says to him. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That word, contrary to you, is the same word that was used in Genesis 3, talking about the woman, that you will be contrary to your husband. You will desire to rule over him. The plain meaning of desire for uh, means that you is the desire to master someone. And what God is saying is that sin, Cain, is trying to master you. It's trying to tell you what to do, namely kill your brother. But you must not let it master you. You must master it. You must rule over it. And the husband's ruling spoken of in Genesis 3.16 is not a punishment, but the necessary remedy. Because from now on, there will be a competition for control in the household in God's given order. The proper remedy is to return to the creational pattern of man lovingly, not in a dominating way, leading over his wife. Okay? Think about it this way. To a certain extent, we all want what we cannot have, right? We all covet what's not ours. Let me just give you a couple examples of this. Let's say that um, I met you in a room and I pulled out a stack of money, $1,000. And you're like, whoa, and what's that for? I'm like, well, I'm going to give it away. I'm giving it away. And I, there's $1,000 here and I'm going to give you $800. Now, at first you'd probably be, that's awesome. But most people would be thinking, well, why not the whole $1,000, right? Why can't I have that extra $200? Is it really that big of a deal? You see, automatically, what we can't have, we want. You didn't have anything before, and now something's given to you, but you are not content with that. You want more. Think about it this way, another way to look at it. Let's say that I played, I put a, um, there was a table. We went into a room, and there was a table with 10 boxes on the table. And I said, there's something in each of these boxes, something special in each of these boxes, and you can choose one of them. You can choose one of them. Whatever is in there, you can take. And you're, you're thinking, I don't even know which one to take. How do, I, how do I guess? But then I quickly add and say, oh, but you can't choose box number two. What is the one box that you want now more than any other box? You want box number two, right? Why? Because it is forbidden, right? There's that curiosity. Hmm, what's he hiding from me? This is what Eve struggled with, Right? What is God holding back from me? Think about one more example. Um, if you've been on the seawall lately, all of the uh, entrances down to the beach are blocked with gates. Um, we moved to the island over five years ago, and when I first came here, um, almost spending a lot of time on the beach. Loved it. Building sandcastles, swimming uh, in the beach. Haven't done that much um, in the last couple of years. Frankly, I don't want to get sand in my shoes and have to shower after I get home. But once those gates went up, guess what? I suddenly had a strong urge, more than ever, to go onto the beach. Why? Because it's forbidden, right? And I am thinking, no, 
Galveston County, you cannot tell me what to do. I am going to do this. Now I haven't, okay? But there is that struggle there, right? Because it is forbidden. It's forbidden from us. Part of our fallen nature is that we yearn for what we cannot have. Eve ultimately wasn't looking for Adam's role. She was looking for God's role. She wanted to be like God. And this is apparently Satan's problem too, right? Satan wanted to be like the most high. He wanted to take that role, and it was not his role to take. Nor was it Eve's role to exercise authority over the man. She was to exercise authority over the rest of creation, yes, just not over the man. Why? Because once again, it was not her role given by God. She was given the role of man's helper. Man's helper. And I wish, ooh, I wish that we had time to explore this in detail uh, because the meaning of this is really, really beautiful. Basically, that word helper means help. Um, it can also be used in, in other contexts uh, to mean a reinforcement of troops. And I love that. The, 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 the situation is a battle, right? And it's an important battle, and it's a hard battle. And what do you see? You see a reinforcement of troops coming to fight the battle with you. God was basically saying this uh, to Adam. Adam, look at this place. This earth is huge. And what I want you to do is I want you to till the ground. I want you to work the ground. I want you to see, I want to see uh, crops coming forth. And then I want, to, I want you to mine uh, the, the minerals and the material that's in there and find precious metals. And then I want you to build things. And Adam's probably thinking, this is too much for me. And God says, oh, but I got reinforcements coming. I have help that is on the way. God was providing help for him. This is not a leadership role, but lest you think that that implies inferiority, remember that God is also referred to as our helper in the Bible. He's referred to our helper in places like Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 7, and Psalm 33, 20. It's the same word that is used here in Genesis chapter 2. God is our helper. And then when we move into the New Testament, who is referred to as the helper? Yeah, you would say the Holy Spirit, and you would be right, but the Holy Spirit is referred to as another helper, right? Who is the original helper? Jesus himself is our helper, and uh, Hebrews chapter 13 calls God our helper. So God comes alongside of us to help us. At no point is God, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit ever inferior to us. Once again, um, what we talked about last week, Jesus became submissive to the Father. He stooped. He took on, on the role of a servant, even washed the, the, the feet of the disciples, the worst job in the house, the lowliest job in the house. He stooped and he did that, but at no point was he ever, ever inferior to the disciples. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says that Eve was created as a helper fit for the man. 
That word fit literally means according to the opposite of him. According to the opposite of him. Sounds a lot like complementary to him, right? (laughs) She was fit. She was uh, created according to the opposite of him. In other words, this helper, the woman, will be one who by relative difference and essential equality should be his fitting complement. Let me say that again. One who by relative difference and essential quality should be his fitting complement. And so that cheesy phrase, you know, she completes me, is actually biblical, right? (laughs) She completes me. She complements me. So God gives differing roles to differing people, including men and women. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, a woman's a woman's role does not include teaching or exercising authority over a man. Now, I can't go into all of what the, the full implications of what this means now. There's a lot of applications that we don't have time to go into, but at the very least, it includes teaching in an authoritative way from the pulpit on a Sunday morning and leading in the capacity of the office of an elder. Those roles are not given to women. As far as I know, in this church, there has never been a woman who has taught um, from the pulpit or a woman who has ever held the office of elder in this church. And the reason is, is because we don't believe that that is a role given to women. So what are the roles that are given to women? And what I would say initially is many, many roles. When I look at this church specifically, I am blown away by the women of this church. Um, the women, how they serve so faithfully. And a lot of times, I, it's, women are more active, sadly, in the church than a lot of men are. The women um, do so much in this church. They have many multiple roles. But for the sake of the text, Paul just mentions one here in the text. And that is the bearing of children. Now with that statement, I can almost feel the gasps at home, right? (gasps) Oh no, you didn't go there, right? I mean, you can just hear. (gasps) So I am to just remain barefoot and pregnant at home. That's what God is calling me to do. Now once again, this is only one role that Paul is talking about here. But what I want to say is before you start to label me or Paul as a sexist or chauvinist, The bearing of children is a tremendous and essential role that is reserved exclusively for women. Once again, it's been going on for thousands and thousands of years, so yeah, that's just what we do. But man, don't don't take that lightly, right? It is a tremendous role. Now, I want to be very, very sensitive here. I'm going to be very sensitive because I'm speaking in very general terms regarding women. But I am fully, fully aware that in every church that I've ever served in, and I would imagine almost every church in America, that there are women who cannot have children. There are women who cannot have children either because they're uh, single or because they're married and they're unable to physically carry children in their womb. 
I remember over a decade ago, I was sitting uh, in my church in, in St. Louis, and a woman asked if she could meet with me, and she came into my office and immediately just started breaking down crying and what was going on. Um, and so she finally got it out, and she's like, my husband and I have been trying for years to have kids, and we can't. You know, and I was speechless, right? I was speechless. She just wept and wept and wept. So I understand that this is a very sensitive issue. I know that, that not all women can have children. For whatever reason, God has not called all women to get married, or men for that matter, to get married, and God has not called all women to have children. Paul even acknowledges in 1 Corinthians 7 the importance of singleness um, as well in the plan of God. But the point is that when we're talking about the roles um, that God has given to males and females, I would urge women not to underestimate the tremendous role that you and you alone have been given in having and bearing uh, children. Besides the, the, um, the pushing against the bladder of the baby, right? Besides the stretch marks that are going to come, besides the back pain, um, besides the, the pain in labor and delivery, I would imagine, because I only have to imagine, because I am not a woman, I'd imagine that there's something very wonderful about having a human being growing in you. It's got to be something really wonderful about having a human being uh, growing in your womb, to have that baby hearing your heartbeat as it goes to sleep in its different cycles. To have that baby hearing your voice more than any other voice in the world. To be able to nurse that child at your own breasts because men cannot do this. Anatomically, we have not given, been given the ability. Now, I know um, that a, a, a man can bottle feed the baby, but it's not the same thing. And I would say even with adopted children, there's a special bond between a mother and the children, whether they are female or male children, there's a special bond that takes place. I loved my dad. I was closer to my mom. I did a lot more with my dad, but I was closer to my mom. There's a special bond. And if a kid gets hurt on the playground, right? What's the first thing they say? I want my mommy, right? There's that tenderness that God has given specifically to women. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's an essential role, and it's a very special role, and in no way inferior to that of a man. Last week, we mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we mentioned verse 3, where Paul makes this very difficult statement, seemingly chauvinistic statement um, here. <clears throat> and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. But that is not the end of the story. Paul goes on in verse 8 to say this. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Now he's still carrying that argument. Why is the man the head of the woman? Because man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Man was created, and then God created a helper. The woman was created for the man. The man was not created for the woman. Verse 11 is very important. Nevertheless, in the Lord, 
Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, yes, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, men, lest you get cocky and saying, I'm an authority. The woman is saying, yes, but you would not be here if it weren't for me, right? You would not be here if it weren't for a woman who brought you into this world so that you could exercise the God-given authority that you have. The point is that we are all dependent on each other. God has made us complementary to each other. When God brought Eve to Adam, Adam did not say, sweet, another human being that I can rule over, that I can boss around, do this woman, do that woman. No, what did he do? He immediately broke into song, right? At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. At last, help in this huge mission that God has put before me is here. The mission of filling the earth with the glory of God. Now after the fall, I fully admit that men, there are men who abuse that authority. We hear it all the time. On the news, we hear it all the time. Uh, almost everywhere we go. But most men, the godly men, who understand God's design, celebrate women because they are different and complementary. And that's what I think we should do as well. I, I remember talking to someone in the church, um, a woman, a young woman, and she um, was telling me that when she first came to this church, um, she uh, heard our position on this issue, and she was taken aback by it. And she called her mom, and she told her mom our position, and her mom said this, run from that church. Get out of that church as fast as you can. Run from that church. And she said, nope, I'm learning a lot here. I'm going to stay in. I'm going to study this stuff. I'm going to look at this stuff. And she did. And she started to see the beauty of it. She started to see how the men treat the women in this church. She started to see God's design. And she has become, in my opinion, one of the biggest advocates of these distinguishing roles. And even talking to her husband, I know that she says, you are in authority, and he handles that authority with a lot of fear and trembling, right? I am leading you, and I'm going to be responsible for you one day. Now, this is interesting because even if you look at Romans chapter 5, it's the woman who plunged the world into sin, right? But according to Romans 5, who is held responsible for that? It was the man. The woman's not mentioned in Romans 5. It says, by one man's sin, by one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world. Adam is held. He goes, no, it was her, right? And God's like, no, I gave you the authority, and you misused it. You gave it away. So God is holding Adam, the man, responsible. Now, there's so much more that can be said, and I know that many uh, who are listening have a ton of questions. And well, like I said at the beginning, we as the leaders want to make ourselves available. Um, we're, uh, you can, if you have any questions, we're encouraging you to email them uh, to the uh, 
uh, uh, to the office and uh, we can compile those and we'll either write out our answers or maybe have a video session where we're answering those questions because I didn't get to, uh, a chance to get to everything. Um, but in the meantime, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that this is how God has established things. This is not us as the leader saying, just shut up and listen, right? This is how God has established this, and we know that we are responsible ultimately for this church, for the people of this church, and we will be held accountable by God one day. This is how God has established it, and we believe that this is how God, uh, that the church should carry it out. So my final admonition is this. Let's join together as equals, those who possess differing roles, and let's seek to fulfill the mission that God has called us to for his glory and the good of Galveston. We're going to go into a time of prayer, and what uh, I'm encouraging is that even those who are watching from home uh, today, just take a moment right now um, as a family or as an, uh, if you're uh, there alone, to just seek God, to just pray and say, God, what are you calling me to do? Um, help me to celebrate the roles that you have given me in my life. So let's just take a, a moment um, right now uh, to pray silently to God. God, I pray that today I have represented you accurately. I pray that if I said anything that is not true, Lord, that you would forgive me and that you would strike it from the memory of anyone. Lord, I pray that we would understand the beauty of your creation, that we would understand that we have been given roles, that we would not covet those roles that another has been given, but that we would celebrate where we are, that we would be content in the current situation where we are, whether that be a role of leadership or a role of servant, whether that be a, 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 we're wealthy or not wealthy, whatever it be, Lord, I pray that we would be content realizing that everything uh, that we have has been given us, given to us by you and help us not to grasp for things that you have not given us because the consequences are always disastrous. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would be glorified in your church, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.